Charlie Gladstone here and welcome to episode 17 of my Mavericks podcast. Thank you as ever very, very much for joining me. Welcome or welcome back. Today's conversation is with Steve Abbo Abbott. Um, People of a certain generation know him as Abbo and nowadays he's known as Steve, probably for reasons that will become apparent. Abbo is a very good friend of mine. I first met him in the late 1980s when I was in the music industry. I came to the music industry absolutely loving music, but I didn't really get on with the music industry. Of course, I made a few friends and I actually lost touch with quite a lot of those because I left London with my wife Caroline and our young son Jack and we moved to the Highlands of Scotland when I decided I didn't want to do the music industry anymore and we wanted to grow up in some sort of Highland bucolic idyll, which we did. So I lost touch with some of my friends. Abbo was one of the real good guys in the music industry, creative, great taste, very switched on to what was going on, and he and I completely lost touch. But then we re-met four or five years ago, and now we work on the Good Life experience together. There are four of us that started the festival and continue to run it. That's Steve and his wife, Keris Matthews, and me, of course, and my wife, Caroline. Steve's got a really interesting history. He started out in a multiracial, I think, vegetarian punk band called UK Decay, and now is one of the principal managers of contemporary classical musical artists around the world, including Max Richter and Lung Lung. It's an absolutely fascinating evolution, and a lot of really interesting stuff has happened in between. So, without further ado, Here's me chatting in mid-October in my small, dingy office in London with Steve Abbo Abbott. You grew up in Luton. Yeah. And then you did this amazing thing of forming a band as a, a young teenager. So talk me through that, because that's, that was mm. a very unusual and brave thing to do. Well, I think I've always, you know, I can't really take credit for any of the um, <laughs> major decisions I've made in my life. I think they've just happened. Um, without sounding too sort of lassadaisical, um, you know what tends to happen is, you know, the circumstance I find myself in leads to something much bigger or different. Mm. And you know, I was leaving school with, uh, you know, five O levels, and I went to do A levels, and then it was it was work. And I did I had three interviews: two, one with Lloyd's Bank, one with Barclays Bank, and one as a floor person at Selfridges, I didn't get any of the jobs. And I, <laughs> I, I didn't fancy... Not, the, I, I can't imagine that. It was, well, my mother bought me a jacket and um, I didn't like the jacket. I'd never worn a, ja- worn a blazer before, but I'd never sort of worn a formal jacket. And I remember going to the interviews and just being totally unprepared for these banal questions they ask you. Obviously, they've got... The and also, thing. if you're wearing a jacket that you're not comfortable in at that age, <laughs> it's like you're not going to perform say, well. It sounds trivial, but, but I just, I just it, I felt uncomfortable. And that told me I'd probably be uncomfortable wearing that jacket every day in the job. You know, I suppose it's sort of like, you know, um, you live in a mining town and you go down the mine, you absolutely hate it. I'm sure a lot of miners did. But the, the hat didn't fit, and that jack, jacket didn't fit. So I just, I, it, it wasn't right. And you know, the army were, uh, you know, the fire brigade, the police, um, they were the sort of places that, that I suppose I was the perfect fodder for where I'd come from. Um, and but, but you know, again, a lot of people point to that one person in their life that changed their life, and and I had two actually, an English teacher at school called Mr. Owen that was incredibly strict, 
hence he commanded respect um, with physical violence from, from the, the classroom. And we studied Henry V and Dylan Thomas under Milt Wood. And then chess was probably my main interest uh, growing up, collecting records and playing chess. Um, and through the chess team, um, the chess teacher, Mrs. Gain, was also the drama teacher. And one day I was doing impressions of the, of the teachers, uh, particularly uh, uh, Mr. Jaffrey, our chemistry teacher from Pakistan. Um, and she said, oh my God, you should be an actor. And I said, didn't, didn't really understand what that was all about. Yeah. And then she started to put me into sort of school plays and um, then we sort of won a few competitions. And then I found myself um, acting as the first voice um, at a theatre in Holborn. So parallel with that was the advent of punk rock. Okay. And, you know, punk rock uh, for me was more, I was excited by the music. Um, I was I was bored with 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 a lot of the music that was out there at the time. Just spooling back, you said just now, you know, like the army and things with a sort of that someone like you, with yeah. the sort of job that someone like you. What was your background? Well, the background was just you know two working parents, three elder sisters, and you know the telly ruled our house and the TV went on. My dad came home from work. He was an he was a, an engineer. Um, uh, the telly went on and that was it. Everyone sat in front of the telly and I just didn't enjoy it and. I had to read, suddenly start reading these parts I was learning. I went down to the library in Luton um, and sort of befriended the person in the music library and someone in the library. I think librarians love people interested in libraries. because they, they can be like graveyards. Like know, teachers, and, and like the, people who are interested in books. Yeah, precisely, yeah. precisely. So, so, you know, without realising it, I was reading sort of, you know, J.G. Ballard and, you know, and Shakespeare. And the challenge of reading those books gave me a sort of a level of concentration that when it came to getting a job done, I could get a job done, even though they were quite menial. Um, you know, if I had to, at school, do homework, um, you know, I would do it and I'd really take great pride in it, much to the offence of a lot of the other people in my class. They were really offended, mm. the fact that I actually was interested in, <laughs> in, in doing a quality job. They were like, oh, no, I haven't done my homework. You okay, know? okay, so, 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 you know, that, that's your, so you're not that comfortable with the sort of what's going on at home culturally. As no, it were. Mm. and then and you're collecting records. And what sort of music are you listening to? Well, at this Mo stage? Motown and reggae was a big, big changing okay. point. And this it, is about 1977, or yeah, that would be 77. I started collecting records in seven, in '66 because my sisters used to buy me them for birthday presents because they wanted them. Yeah, and absolutely. you know we grew up in a very <laughs> Farley Hill, the estate I'm from. You know. Um, People talk of it in hushed tones, like it's some sort of open prison, but it's not. The community there, which is why I love living in W11, the community was so strong. Yeah. You know, if somebody's parent died, suddenly all the parents were helping out, you know. Um, well, it, but it was, it was, this is in Luton, it was seen as being kind of really dangerous or... This estate was, um, you know, Irish, Scottish, uh, then Indians, then Pakistanis, um, you know, there was a few Polish families there. There was the odd English family as well, you know, but it was, what was great about it was, you know, I, we didn't, I didn't know what racism was really until I left our own sort of environment. It was quite mm. shocking when I found that people were um, denigrated for, for, you know, their, their cultural backgrounds. It was quite shocking. I still do find it shocking. In fact, my children do as well. I don't know if it's something in the blood or, or whether it was, you know, that I passed that on to them through the, through the way I discuss, you know, the world we live in. But the great thing about it was, you know, you could you left the estate, you could get on with anybody. You know, we became friends, you know, from very different backgrounds. It was quite mm. easy. Yeah. You know, same way, you know, the English teacher was um, opening up my world to language and, and, you know, that understanding that language also gave you access to worlds that perhaps, you know, wouldn't be uh, particularly um, attractive even. 
you know, um, at the age of sort of 14, 15, 16. But Dylan Thomas, what was brilliant about Dylan Thomas was obviously now I see it as being very, very Welsh. But at the time, with a Welsh English teacher, it wasn't unusual. You know, it was just a passion that he had for the spoken word, you know. And the same way, you know, through um, the drama teacher, you know, an interest in, you know, um, Cat and Hot Tin Roof and, and the plays we were doing, you know, it, it, was, it, it was brilliant because it just, um, it, it gave the chance when punk rock came along, you know, I felt, I, I felt it was something that Your I just Your antennae sort of were into. out, is antennae that? Antennae were out, yeah. but also I had the language, you know, yeah, because okay. you've got to write songs. Yeah. So what, what was it in punk that was speaking to you? Was it that the fact that it, it was shaking things up or was it that it wasn't discriminatory? Or well, it wasn't discriminatory. You know, people, you know, I don't think that people really understand what life was like in those days unless you were living it, you know, where you would get beaten up. You know, for, for looking walking, at someone. For looking at someone, yeah. And, and where, you know, uh, you know, a puff would be, you know, be an absolute put down, you know. And it was like people didn't really understand what the word meant, you know, and, 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 you know, worse for me was really the racism. And what I loved about punk was its close proximity to reggae, because you had this exciting music that, that was so, um, it wasn't inclusive, you know, it was something with, with open doors that anybody could, you know, be part of. And you didn't have to be in a band, you could be in a band, you could express yourself the way you dress, you could just, you know, there's plenty of hippies going to punk gigs as well. But what I loved about it was everybody was invited, it was a big party. It was a revolution that so, everyone's invited. You know. So did you form? Did you form UK Decay? Was it your? It was band? a band called the Resistors, and they were a local in the Sixth Form College, a, lo a local band doing a couple of gigs, and they weren't happy with uh, the guitarist or the singer. So I joined as the guitarist, and I wrote the songs as the guitarist. But then uh, the singer we had um, from St Albans, he just didn't turn up one day to rehearsal, and again that whole thing that I've always had in life is is like you've got to commit to something. And that was it for me, him not turning up before we had a concert two days later, we just told him not to come to the concert and I, I sang, which I didn't, I wasn't really a singer, with the idea that we'd get someone in yeah. later, you know, get through this, this, this gig at the local arts club, you know, in front of like 30 people. Um, and then it takes on a life of its own because, you know, in Luton there wasn't a civic centre. Uh, when bands did come local, like The Clash played in Dunstable, the building got wrecked. Um, you know, it, was, it, it wasn't a live music scene, so the fact that we were just playing music in pubs and event spaces, people went because they, they were bored. It was that old punk thing, I'm bored, you know, so what should we do? Oh, we, well, we'll go and, uh, you know, hang out, make some music and, you know. Make I, some I, mayhem. And I didn't drink as well, of course. I didn't drink till I was 35. So that was quite a strong, um, you know, I suppose in, in the sort of socialisation process that I, that, I, that I was part of drinking I saw as something that was very unattractive um, a because you were unfocused B because quite a few of my friends had alcoholic fathers and and the abuse that went with that that we didn't really talk about but you knew about it and I just didn't see an attraction to it so you so UK decay formed after the resistors yes yeah, yeah. And, and but the, what the, there were interesting things about that because you you didn't drink yeah you were multiracial yeah you weren't involved in drugs yeah you're vegetarian almost vegetarian I became okay. vegetarian just after the band. Okay. But we'd pretty well lived on chips. So it's funny, isn't it? Because <laughs> because I think when people look at punk from the outside, mm. they just think of white kids making a lot of noise. Nihilism. Taking drugs. Yeah, mm. nihilism. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. so w was it a kind of conscious decision to do something different or did it just come no, from it just what came. you're talking about yeah. on the estate? Yeah, the flower was being watered by different people and, you know, that flower sort of first started to bloom with, with the growth of, of, with the advent of punk rock because it was... 
it was just going on. And like I said, I'm, I'm not someone that, that really puts a lot of thought into what direction I'm going. I mean, the one thing I've learned now is to not always take the fastest, shortest route to something. You know, um, in those days, in those days, I did. It was, you did just yeah. do it. Okay. You know, in front of but you. so, how did you get? So you, I mean, you became one of the. I mean, you know, you probably won't admit this, but one of the biggest and most influential punk bands around. I definitely how, won't admit that. How, but it, <laughs> what, it was a, it was a big band. I think it was influential in the fact that we were outspoken about our, our politics of life. You know, we were we had a lot of trouble with the British movement, National Front, uh, physically coming to our concerts and trying to break them up. Um, we had a multiracial band, uh, one of the first punk bands, but it wasn't, that wasn't a thought. We didn't go out looking for a black bass player, you know. No, no. Eddie Branch found us and joined the band, you know. Um, and, you know, we, I suppose what we did, we were just honest. You know, we didn't, we didn't really have a business aspiration, you know. There was never uh, any attempt or, or mathematical, mathematical calculation in, in the songs that we were writing. But you wanted to be heard, presumably, and play to, to yeah. bigger audiences. But, but I don't think we contrived to do that. It just happened because, you know, it did, you know. And I think there's a song, when I look at the lyrics that that sort of 17 to 21-year-old wrote for the band, you know, when I look at myself and that era, I, I, I can't actually remember, you know, sort of writing those. I don't feel connected to them which is very weird, you know, people write songs and, and that becomes their calling card for the rest of their life, but they were very much of the time for me and they're sort of buried in that time. And, you know, those songs, uh, obviously, For My Country, which was uh, probably the most famous song we ever did, and that was, that was an anti-war song. And, of course, that came out of this army situation, you know. I don't want to join the army. <laughs> yeah. And as soon as the punk band comes six months later, you know, I don't want to die for my country, you know. Yeah. I, d I don't care what you ask me to do, but yeah. I don't want to kill anybody for my country either. Yeah. And then there was a song like uh, Sexual, um, you know, um, A Male Dilemma, Condemned Predictable. You know, I wasn't sexist. I'd grown up with three older sisters. I'd, I'd had the crap beaten out of me if I was sexist. But people just presumed, oh, you're male. You know, but you got, but you got, did you get a record deal quite quickly? We did, yeah. We put our own records out. Uh, again, it's one of those things. It was in front of us. People were doing that. So entrepreneurial, so, though. So we did, yeah, but it wasn't, Conscious thought. We, yeah. we want to put a record out because the people that come into our concerts want to buy our music. So we recorded uh, with another band, did something called a split single, where we pulled our money. They had two tracks one side and we had two tracks the other. We called it the split single. And we, we put it out. It was reviewed by the NME, um, by Charles Sour Curry and, and Danny Baker, <laughs> as the worst punk record they'd ever heard. And this was like our, our two-year search to find the worst record, and that was it but we had our own little box in the review. Um, people saw it and people bought the record. And we were coming down to Rough Trade Shop, to Jeff Travis and uh, yeah, the shop just uh, around W11. Um, and as fast as we could print them, they were selling them. They were selling two or 300 a week uh, at one point. So, you know, we sold about four or 5,000 of that first single. And then a label called Fresh Records, who were looking for bands, sort of basically signed us up to do some singles and an album. And then, and then you end up touring Literally yeah, we all toured, over the toured States. Europe. Then we went to the States, yeah. We played here with the Dead Kennedys. We went to Europe. Uh, I had another stroke of luck. Luton's twin town is Berlin. So I went on a student <laughs> exchange at the Maybe age of 16. Maybe that was the Bowie connection. Yeah, well, well, he, he was, this is when, when he was discovering Berlin, you know. Um, and of course, you know, the soundtrack to, to my going to Berlin was the Low album by David Bowie and Heroes that had just come out. Um, so I went to see Hansa Studio. I was there for two weeks. It cost 80 pounds. I'd never been an aeroplane before. Um, so I was 16 and it was so exciting and I realised that Berlin was probably the place I'd like to live and that was the next stage with the band was I realised you could do it anywhere. I signed a publishing deal with Cherry Red, that gave me enough money and I, I moved to Berlin. 
And, and then the band toured America several yes. times. Yeah, well, well, we did one big tour of America, um, and that was with uh, uh, the Dead Kennedys, uh, Black Flag, DOA, Circle Jerks, Flipper. We played with a lot of great bands. Uh, the problem was we weren't thrash punk band. We were quite slow. Yeah. So, you know, I think we did about 30 shows, and at least probably eight or nine we got canned off stage. So you were playing quite slow music, and one of, yeah. the, one of your definite claims to fame is that you're alleged to have invented the word goth. Yeah, well, I, I, I can claim that uh, rather embarrassedly, but um, that was a journalist, Steve Keaton from Sounds, realised that we, we were building this audience that wasn't dependent on the media because the reviews were so awful across the board, you know. He started to champion us. Whether he liked the music, I don't know, whether he just felt sorry for us, but he started to champion us. <laughs> And the audience was expanding rapidly. You know, we were playing, going from playing, you know, 200 clubs to, to you know, 1,500, 2,000. But, you know, apart from John Peel, it wasn't on the radio and you couldn't read about us in the press. And we'd, you know, the example of The Clash, we would never do a TV show unless we could play live. And there wasn't the platform for that in those days. You know, you had to mime on every TV show. So we, um, you know, we built this following and um, I used to always wear black clothes, so did the band, because when you're touring, especially at the age of like 17, 18, 19, you're not particularly au fait with washing clothes. Uh, you know, yeah. you take a toothbrush and um, occasionally a razor for that once every three months shave when, the, when the, the few bristles were showing from the chin. But that was it, black clothes were the way to tour and not have to wash, <laughs> wash them. So, um, also, you know, another author I've become enamored with is Edgar Allan Poe. Um, you know, I just love the imagery of his, of, of his language. I know it's not highbrow, doesn't matter. You know, the great imagery, you know, uh, you know Rue Morgue, uh, The Black Cat was one of our songs. Um, so I took a lot of, lot of uh, lyrical imagery from Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. And used them as analogies, uh, you know, for our everyday life. We had one song, Unexpected Guest. We had a, a burglar um, broke into a house. We had nothing to steal. He, he, took, he didn't take anything. <laughs> but the fact <laughs> he'd been around the whole of the house was very creepy. Horrendous. You know? Oh, yeah. I know. I and, mean, I've you know, I saw this analogy with, yeah. with those, um, you know, the stories of Poe and the likes. So we had this imagery of, um, you know, the darker side of life. We were wearing black clothes and Steve King said, well, what, what is it? What are you? Because you're a punk band, but you're not, you know, a hardcore punk band. You're not a thrash band. You know, you're not like a clash sound alike. And I said, well, it's like gothic rock. And that was it. Just that one line. So he put the headline in the feature and it was in Belgium he interviewed us somewhere. I think it was uh, in Brussels, and the headline was Punk Gothique or something. Right, and okay. That, that was, and that was it. And then S suddenly a lot of the bands that were supporting us <laughs> started to call themselves sort of goth bands. Goth bands, bands. Yeah. how amazing. Yeah, so it, yeah. Was, it was a trivial, um, I don't think i ever trivial, said it before. It was, it was pretty literal, I think. Well, I, I, yeah, but there wasn't any thought went into the comment, and it, it was suddenly out there, you know, thank God it wasn't the days of social media. So it took, it took a few months. But people were coming to our gigs and saying, oh yeah, we're, we're, we're goths. Amazing. And I'm like, what, what do you mean? And they said, well, you know, you're a goth band. And like, and suddenly lots of other bands on our scene were sort of labelled with this goth tag. Before we move on to talking about things that aren't punk related or about Steve's early life, I think we should just have a little blast of UK Decay. So here is a section of probably their best known song, For My Country. Tales of hate, 
most interesting things that you told me is that when you were touring around Europe you would want to buy music and the cheapest music that you could find in the garages and what have you was was classical music yeah, yeah. so you're now working not exclusively but pretty substantially in mm. classical music and did that start there yeah absolutely the classical education came from traveling around in a white minibus or a transit van and of course, when the light went down, I couldn't read. And I was an avid reader. So we'd go into the garages, get petrol, and I'd be buying Herbert von Karajan, Wagner, you know, Mozart, Brahms, you know, and then you sort of get to Schoenberg and, and Berg, Berg, and you know, you suddenly realize after you've been on the road for two years that you know far more about classical music than if you'd studied at school. Because I never studied, we didn't have music at school. It wasn't one of the, the options. Um, so, uh, but I felt an affinity with it, you know, because I really wasn't aware of that sort of whole white music thing that was going on, you know, the, the classical no. history that turned into prog. I had a sister who loved prog and, and I'd bought some prog records, but I never sort of thought about it musically. And, um, and the classical, we didn't see it as highbrow, we just saw it as a function, travelling late at night. And yeah, listened, it was music. It was music. When you listen yeah. to, you know, Die Valkyrie or something, you know, uh, um, or, or any part of the ring, 11 o'clock at night, driving through German landscape, it, you see the sense of it, you know? Yes. Lung yeah. Lung, Lung, Lung said to me that um, the pianist, uh, I managed a classical pianist, that, you know, for all he learned in China, where to put the fingers on the keyboard, you know, different pedal movements, the big moment came for him when he saw the Alps and the Tyrol. And then he realised that all of this music, the, the well of inspiration that had gone through sort of Thomas Mann to, you know, to, to, you know in, in, into sort of, you know, Wagner, Schoenberg, and of course before that Mozart, you know, that whole imagery that went with it was so integral to that music that you can never learn that in China. And, and so you, now you're managing Lung Lung and you work with Max Richter and, mm. and so, you know, some of the biggest contemporary classical musicians in the world. Um, do, do you think that was always your destiny from those moments? Well, again, it wasn't predetermined by me. You know, I certainly didn't do anything to set, you know, intentionally to set this up. But I did find, you know, when I finished in the band and I started a record label, I was as keen to sign classical music as I was alternative rock music. Right, and that's you know, when we first met. But I didn't yeah. even—I had no idea you were interested in classical yeah. music at that stage. Well, yeah, I mean, I probably didn't go around my cassette collection, I didn't have a car, you know, if I'd have given yeah. me a lift, yeah. <laughs> when I got a car it was... So that's where you are now, but then mm. in the interim you ran your record label, which is how you and I first met, but you've also worked with extraordinary artists like Mercury Reb, and most notably, of course, Jeff Buckley. Mm. So tell me a bit about the Jeff Buckley thing, because I mean, he must be one of the great sort of mythologised, yeah. the greatest mythologised well, artists. Everybody loves you when you're dead, unfortunately, and I think, you know, with Jeff, he found success in the UK, France and Australasia in his lifetime, but America just wasn't really interested. Um, and I remember being at his funeral um, in St. Anne's in Brooklyn, and it was one of those moments where I looked at the people in the room and you realise just how important he was. You know, there was a singer of Soundgarden, there was um, the highest ranking woman in Sony um, music in the world, there was, uh, you know, 
Marianne Faithful. You know, there's all these artists across generations and people in the business. But it was too, it was kind of too late by then. It was too late, but but that was really the start of it for for his sort of music career. Right. But you know what was um, what was a shame was that Jeff just wanted to be loved. You know, and he wanted his music to be loved. So and, what was your relationship with him? Uh, well, we were mates. You know, I, I met him um, totally by chance again. Uh, I was going out for a drink with my lawyer, uh, Lauren Chodosh, and without telling me, she'd started dating an Irish barman. I think she was embarrassed to tell me that she was disappearing into a bar every night. So she disappeared into a bar. I went to the Nissan factory. I saw uh, a band called Gods and Monsters, and Jeff was playing the guitar. And um, the band played their set, mostly friends, about 30 or 40 people there. And Gary Lucas, the singer, wouldn't come back on again. But Jeff came out with his guitar and just played two songs. And he shredded the guitar. And I'm, it was the guitar that hit me more, more than the voice. And he did, um, I can't remember, Mojo Pin or Eternal Life and, and one other song. And as soon as he came off stage, he walked up to his girlfriend. Gary Lucas was furious, and the rest of the band. That because he's stolen the thunder. Yeah. He walked up to his girlfriend, put his arm around her, and I sort of tapped him on the shoulder <laughs> and meekly sort of gave him my Big Cat Records card, you know. And I had no understanding that there was a family history in music or anything. I just was blown away by him. And then I heard nothing from him. And then in, in those days, of course, no mobile phones. And I had a, an answer phone in my apartment off at uh, 129 First Avenue. I came in about two weeks later and it's, hey, it's Jeff, man. Um, I met you the other night at the Needham Factory and wonder if you want to get together, blah, blah. And I got together with him and we had a mutual love of Guinness and music. And he was a big fan of James Brown, Al Green, um, all sorts of... A real diverse area of music, you know, and most people in those days were still quite, you know, tribal and compartmentalised. Oh, completely. In the, in the yeah, music. you could only really like one type of music. So we would go out, and I obviously started drinking by then, and we'd drink Guinness at a place called Tom and Jerry's that had a great jukebox, ironically programmed by my lawyer's boyfriend, who now married Jez Harkin. It had a great jukebox <laughs> there from the Vienna Boys Choir through to, you know, Al Green, the Jackson Five Christmas album. And we put them on, and of course, what amazed me with Jeff, he could mimic anything. You know, right, so, okay. When did you make a record with him? Um, well, actually, I never did. It, it, he was playing at Chenet, and then about three months later, uh, there were limousines outside, and the record companies were coming to see him because the word was out that this guy had a phenomenal voice. And, you know, I was just sort of pushed to the side, really. But Jeff promised me that he would make a record with me. And I had a, a friend, uh, Michelle Anthony, who um, worked at Sony, uh, in the upper echelons there, and she'd become like my mentor in the record business, because I was this sort of eek from the Lower East Side, with, a, with an, I suppose, a love of, you know, like I say, John Taverner, who I just signed, you know, mm. of all types of music. Um, and so through her, she managed to talk to the boss of Sony and say, look, you know, they, had a they have a relationship, Jeff and this, this guy, and he wants to put this live record out. And rather than us try and contrive something, he's got a real record label. Jeff had promised it to him. Um, and so we put the record out. Okay. And of course, they put it out in America and it totally flopped. We put it out here and sold over 5,000 the first day it came out. As fast as we could make them, we were selling them. How amazing, why? Just because the press had caught on to it and yeah, they well, were really the, important? The press, it, we, we brought him over here. To, I did a Radio 4 documentary um, called the, the Grace of Jeff Buckley and that's still available, I think, on... Oh, it's on a brilliant Nightplay. programme. And yeah. that is about when he came to London, you know, yeah. and the, the, just it was meteoric. Uh, just, you know, almost street by... Everywhere he played, you could feel it sort of moving street by street, sort of word of mouth, you know. Um, and, you know, we would... I, it was just... Uh, he had his amp, he had his guitar, and I had a 
convertible white BMW and uh, with a radio in it and a, cassette, and a CD and cassette player. And we travelled around the UK doing these gigs, just just the two of us, just as kind of well, friends. Obviously, him just playing, thank God. I, yeah. I get, <laughs> dream of getting on it stage. It wasn't with the him. sort of Buckley UK decay. No, no, he hybrid. thought he didn't know I was in a band for a long time. And then when he did, um, he bought the records and took the piss out of them. He had various versions, but you know. Be, being with him, it was the person. I love the person, you know, I really do. You know, it's someone that, that you know, the fact he made music, you know, is, was, was a big add-on, being a music fan and having a record label. But as a person, he was absolutely brilliant to be with because there was never a dull moment. He could always, you know, if, if he saw somebody he fancied, he, he'd basically do, it could be one, could be five, until, they, until he got their interest, one to five, a dozen songs from James Brown Live um, at the Olympia. And he would do the movements, he would do the voice, he would do the guitar, and whoever he was trying to charm, but I, 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 ne I didn't see it ever fail, you know. This is, you know, everyone from sort of girls from Grimsby to models from Paris, you know. So he, ha he basically had just complete certainty about his fearlessness. Does that make sense? Well, I mean, yeah. he was completely fearless, it, and he, he had total certainty fearless about... Fearless with music, but um, always feared his father's fate. And he only met his father once. Probably met him once. Yeah. Okay. Talk us talk us through his father for people. Well, who don't well know. Tim Buckley was a, a folk singer um, from the sort of California uh, scene of the late sixties, um, and he made seminal records. A lot of people know song from the Siren, um, which was uh, Cocteau Twins' "This Mortal Coil." Yeah. Um, song that well, cover version. Sorry, uh, but Tim was a great singer songwriter. I didn't really know him. I must be honest. I, I discovered him through Jeff, but Jeff never liked to talk about him. He only talked about him once to me, and, and that was um, when he smashed the radio in my car when they kept calling him Jeff Buckley's son. He's coming on the, the radio station. Tim Buckley's Jeff. son. Uh, Tim Buckley's yeah. son, sorry. Yeah. They didn't say the word Jeff. Tim Buckley's son. But Tim, on the radio. Tim Buckley's legend was, was growing at, at that yeah, point. Yeah, it was. Yeah, well, it, you know, he was a great songwriter and he died young. So he died of a drug overdose. So, you know, a bit like Jeff, you know, he, was, he struggled in his lifetime um, to, to get the the acclaim that he obviously deserves in retrospect but he was that sort of formed his character there was a nervousness to, to Tim Buckley that he turned to drugs you know and Jeff used to drink a lot I mean that he, okay, he used to smoke the odd weed but it used to ruin him you know he'd, he'd have a joint and he'd be ruined he'd be a, a mm. mess on the couch giggling you know um, so it was sort of like uh, that, that always hung over him and he wrote a song called Dream Brother which he came in and played to us. Uh, as Michel Anthony, Dave Laurie's American manager, myself. There's about four of us in the room. And this was the last song, Grace, that he wrote. It needed one more song. He, he knew it needed bookending. He needed one song that could sort of, I suppose, tackle that big question for him, which was his father and his relationship. And if you look at the lyrics to it, knowing that it's Tim Buckley and a son that was sort of deprived of knowing his father, it, it's heartbreaking. It really is. It's, you know, because. He is his dream brother because he didn't actually know him. Yes. So, you know, now yeah. he listens to the records. I know for a fact he could play those that music and mimic it. Did, so, did, think, I mean, just, just before we kind of move on, because there are a trillion stories here, did you have a sense that he was truly great or did you just like hanging out with him because he was just awe-inspiring, yeah. charismatic and Well, he was brilliant. charismatic, yeah. I don't even know if he was inspiring. He was more like a, a fun mate to hang around with. You know, it, it was the class comedian. Mm. You know, it just happened to be, and he was a great guitarist, and this is something that never gets mentioned. If you saw him play the blues, you know, it, it, you would think you were listening to a, you know, a, I know, John Lee Hooker or a, even better, a Lightning Hopkins, you know. He could play it with such authenticity. When he sang Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan, Musti Musti, 
he sang it perfect. You know, I played but it people, to a Pakistani friend. Yeah. Like, oh my God, that's that's. But that's people it. have. I think it's hard for people to say he was an amazing guitarist and singer, and it's yeah. his voice that has always been his thing. Well, he wasn't a songwriter. It? You know, he wrote songs. Yes. He was. You but know, Hallelujah, for example, is probably is, his best known song. Yeah, and, and not cover, his. Yeah. You know, a lot of people didn't know that at the time because the song was pretty well unknown. Yes. Because Leonard Cohen wasn't sort of at the cutting edge of the time. You know, and um, I think what you often find is is. You know, what's seen as the alternative at, at the time you see it as alternative actually is just like, it's not so alternative, it's just the start of, a, of the future almost and, and it very quickly becomes, you know, accepted. Um, and Jeff had an alternative moment with just him and a guitar. Once he got a band, he became like a lot of other people. And it's hard to recognise, people say to me, was he a genius, you know, and, and it's hard to recognise when you've got such close proximity. Of course, It's like someone in family, you don't see their qualities. Yeah, you, you know. can't, well you can't be, you can't As much be, as you get told they're brilliant, no, you don't really see it's it. It's impossible to be objective. Yeah, I mean, no, subjectivity I, I didn't have objectivity with him. No. You know. Someone like Steve Malcolmus from Pavement, uh, or Jonathan from Mercury Rev, you know, they have a touch of something that I really recognise. Um, because they, you know, they, they never cease to surprise me. Whenever they make a record, uh, and when I work with them in particular, I never knew what's coming in. No. You know, once it was delivered, I sit down and listen to it. Actually, I listen to Deserter songs. Jonathan dropped me off the uh, cassette of that in the morning of Jeff's funeral. I think, as you know, I think, I think Mercury Rev's Deserter songs is one of the best albums yeah. ever made. But it has got that touch of, of total difference to it. Yeah. A it, bit like Jeff Buckley, a bit like Pavement, in fact, who you also yeah. mention and work with. Well, I say, when you're spending... I saw a lot of Jonathan those days and Grasshopper, and he dropped the cassette off with a note just saying, yo, brother, you know, uh, I hope you like this stuff. You know, again, not over, no confidence, just, just we've made this record. We haven't yeah. thought about it, we've just made it. And I was 10 minutes late for Jeff's funeral because I listened to it twice. On, I was staying at living, actually living almost in the Soho Grand at that point. So I moved out of the apartment um, in the West Village, the lower West Village. And um, I played the cassette twice and I had to leg it to Brooklyn. And I walked in, the funeral had just started. So um, that was because of, of that record. And it was almost like, you know, when one person in the family dies, another one's born. You yeah. know, it was that sort of moment. The baton was passed at. on in some yeah. really weird, bizarre way. But Jeff wasn't, you know, Mercury Rev, Pavement, Luscious Jackson, you know, all the bands I was working with at the time didn't really appreciate Jeff. They thought he was too mainstream. Yeah, too tr traditionalised. Too traditional. Rooted in yeah, tradition. I took them to see yeah. him and it's like, oh, that Jeff Buckley, you know, I don't know why you've signed him. And, you know, it was across Will Oldham, uh, Palace Brothers, um, King Bill, um, Bonnie Prince, Benny, Billy. You know, I had a roster of, of, you know, people that were sort of alternative, I suppose. Now well, the most like interesting alternative acts of that period in the world. Yeah, they, they, well, I, I would think so. Because obviously it's, I think it's so. awful. When you have a record label, you indulge yourself. And I didn't run it as a business. I ran it as signing things that I liked. Mm. Um, and, you know... Uh, you know, from from John Taverner to you know Pauline Oliveros to Pavement to Mikey Dread and Augustus Pablo and Junior Delgado, you know, three reggae acts. So it was it was so eclectic. And everyone said to me, you know, when I did a few interviews, I did. You know, they, people said, well, you know, are you trying to maximise all those different markets? I said, no, I just like the music. Mm. It was never a marketing decision yeah. signing music. And I think the same for you. You signed things you really loved, didn't you? I, I, mean, I did sign things I love, and I, I also like you, I think, and this is a good sort of segue into the into the present, but I mean I, I work on things I love. Yeah. And if if the money can come after that, that's yeah. really a bonus. It's, it's for a me. top byproduct. I mean, I mean obviously we need it, but I mean <laughs> yeah, I have to I I couldn't work in something I didn't love or yeah. with an act I didn't love. Yeah. Um but I mean so one of the things which I mean, there are, there are two sort of things which particularly interest me at the moment, and one is obviously the good life experience, and we yeah. can have a chat yeah. about that in a minute. 
But um, what's fascinating for me, and I think I touch on a lot in these conversations, is that you work with your wife, Paris yeah. Matthews, and you mm. manage her. Um, it's, it's, you know, and she has had an extraordinary career in that she's been successful as a singer in a band, and now she's a very successful broadcaster and mm. author. What is what what is it like working with your wife? I mean, I you know Caroline and I worked together. It took us a long time to settle down into it, and I think I've said it before on this podcast. Probably because I think to begin with, I was a bit of a prick, thinking I knew everything, <laughs> and I could teach her about business. Mm. I mean, it, it it obviously works. It has worked and continues to work very well because mm. you've helped her career to go in these amazing, successful second yeah. directions. But how does that all work? Well, I was managing her first, so we, oh, met, each, okay. we met each other um, a few times actually, and we just got on. And the it was the things that we disliked we had in common, and you know, so baby on board signs, sort of in cars and stuff like that. Um, you know, the, really music as well, of course. <laughs> certain music we really disliked. Um, I've never we, understood the baby on board sticker, but maybe no, we shouldn't linger there. No, 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 yeah. no. It, 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 it says something that, that we don't like, and I'm not sure what. But and you know, again with music, you know, um, neither of us like rockabilly, and but um, it was a funny time. And I was talking to her yesterday about it because my sister was dying of cancer, so uh, I would, you know, be going around to meet Keris and we'd make you know a few plans and my main aim was really trying to, to get people to see the side of her that I was seeing already. I thought I was signing a really good songwriter. What I didn't realise, I was signing someone that was actually very cultured, had great taste and had a many faceted uh, capabilities, you know, within the arts, you know, food, um, you know, po specifically um, poetry and, and music, of course. But and she wanted to change her career anyway at that stage. Well, again, she, she, she didn't know what she was going to do. You know, I, I sat with her before I was managing her, the night before she went in the jungle. And What was that for? Um, I'd been working with Alid Jones, who's a mate okay. of mine, a drinking friend, and he had f fallen out with his manager, so I ended up managing Alid. And we were, we were good mates, and Keris uh, recorded a duet with him. You know, put the two Welshes together, that sort of record company thinking, you know. Um, so they did a duet. So I met her through Alid, because uh, I'd worked with Tom Jones. I signed Tom Jones when I was um, at V2 Records. And of course she did that duet, Baby, It's Cold Outside. Yes. I was based in Which New York. huge. So I didn't actually meet her. I came over for the video of, of Baby, It's Cold Outside. I sat in the pub across the road, and it was the first day I'd got a Blackberry. They'd just come out. And I turned it on, did all the, the configuration, and all the email poured in. And I couldn't believe it. I'm like, oh my God. I could be anywhere. I could be on the beach in Cannes doing work. It just threw open this huge, bit like the iPod did to me when I first saw an iPod. Um, this seismic sort of moment. So I actually missed the video. I walked across, <laughs> met Tom and, and his son Mark, the manager, and we, we went back to the pub. So I didn't actually meet her. So, um, but that was obviously fate. But she was going into the jungle to do I'm a Celebrity, yeah, Get Me Out of Here. which I thought was the worst decision known to mankind. But she explained that she'd needed to get out of America. She needed to come back home. She wanted to bring her children up in Britain, you know, for the same reason that I wanted to come back to Britain. Um, you know, we didn't fancy the, uh, you know, much as we have a great affinity with American music, um, the sort of all-consuming, you know, worship of the dollar doesn't appeal to us. You know, neither of us have that sort of um, uh, aspiration. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we started working together and, and after she came out of the jungle. And, and we just realised that we had too much in common. You know, it was crazy. And we were being sort of pushed together. Um, and I had a mantra, never marry a musician, because I'd sort of nurse-maided so many musicians. Yes. I specialised in working with female artists over the years. Heather well, you also specialised in quite complicated 
male artists well, as well. Well, I did. Yeah, heroin addicts and yeah, yeah whatever. Yeah. Uh, reggae artists, you know. Um, and anyway, so, yeah, we, we just, we, we grew together, really. And then it was one night um, uh, about ten years ago uh, that we went to Ronnie Scott's with Tom Jones and, and Mark, his son. Um, and they sort of pushed us together, to be honest. Amazing. Yeah. yeah and it's worked brilliantly. And they, they knew you, both of us. You've got children thought, yeah. and her career is going really yeah, well. Yeah, no, we, we're, we're very family orientated as well, you know. And we, we like the simple things. We hardly ever watch, well, we don't have TV channels as such. We have iPlayer. We hardly watch TV, you know. We love great food, you know, great wine, great music, uh, great books, great so, poetry. So this brings, this brings me on to the, the good life experience because this is one of the most weird and serendipitous things that's probably yeah. ever happened to either of us is yeah. that we re-meet after 20 years yeah. in Rough Trade Records shop, mm. have a cup of coffee together, both have roughly the same idea for a festival and form a festival. Yeah, I mean that. That's quite strange, yeah. isn't it? Well, it was. It. Uh, I was standing in rough trade shop uh, as usual. Nigel trying to sell me something I didn't really want here in Talbot Road, <laughs> and I heard the dulcet tones of, of a long lost voice in the past. A chap I used to get on with very well. Yeah, you know? yeah. And you know, we sort of uh, we used to hang around at gigs and things, and um, and talk about music and whatever. And of course, it was none other than Charlie Gladstone. And um, I mentioned to Keris when I got home, I met an old mate of mine, Charlie Gladstone. He hasn't, hasn't changed very much, you know. Um, seems the same chap I'm meeting him. We met up. And then, of course, I think a few weeks later, we were driving to North Wales. That's and right. I called you up and said, oh, are you in Harden? Because you said you were up yeah. there and whatever. And it was the day after you just had, I think it must have been a Monday or Tuesday, you just had some type of food event connected yeah. to the farm shop. that's right. And I think it was that moment when we both thought, this could really be something. If mm. you put the, the sum of the parts, I didn't know Caroline at that point, you know, obviously brings a lot to the festival. Um, you know, the sum of the parts and uh, probably, um, you know, a common interest in creating something that, uh, that actually didn't have the flaws of all the other festivals that we've been, you know, attending, playing at, presenting, you know, between the four of us, we've pretty much had every f festival experience to get rid of those negatives was a great place well, to also, start. Well, I think, also, I think the thing that I recognised in you guys was this wide cultural interest, this amazing taste in music. I mean, mm. 700,000 people listen to Keris' show, which plays mm. yeah. what she no, chooses. Amazing. So that's, so mm. it, was, it was almost like it would be mad not to do it. Yeah, but starting a festival, uh, you know, everybody says, what the hell do you start a festival for? And again, for me, it, we just fell into it. You know, this we is did. like... Well, we'd, we'd had our first edition within about six months of that first meeting. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did it quite quickly. Yeah. And um, it reminds me very much of, there was a Martin Gilbert book I used to love when I was about 15, 16. I think it was the courses of the Second World War, how the world fell into war, you know. Um, and it, that's how that, the festival was to me. You know, you sort of have your Clemencos and your Churchills and your, you know, Edens. And, you know, we were, you know, these, these people, they sort of, you know, they all have their separate interests, but they come together. And a different moment in times created, you know, and I think that's very much, without sounding too pretentious, what the festival was like. We I think also the moral of the story is that if you're going to be entrepreneurial and creative, you have to not overthink things, don't you? Yeah, yeah. You have to kind yeah. of feel it somewhere in your yeah. heart or your guts. I think when you don't. And give it a go. When you don't, it's a recipe for problems. Well, I think, if you, I think if you overthink it, you probably don't do it, it's the yeah, answer. Yeah, true. Yeah, I suspect. Yeah, no. Obviously, festivals are notoriously um, temperamental. Uh, you know, uh, success comes can be determined by the weather. <laughs> you know, regardless of what you do behind the scenes, it can be determined by you know one 
big mistake in in talent, you know, pulling out um, that can ruin people. So it's it's a funny business to get into, probably so late in life. But like I say, to me, you know, it wasn't the quick route for me to get to to you know being involved in the festival. I took it's, it's been a long scenic route, and all the things I've seen have now so informed, you know, how we work with this festival. And uh, I. I, I... I absolutely feel the same. I feel mm. like, you know, we have, you know, we've got a long way to go, but I feel like all roads have, have led to it. It's really weird, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, all, all of our skills seem to be thrown into, you know, uh, our mistakes and, and the positives of the, back, of the past seem to be thrown into this festival. And, you know, I think the Good Life experience, you know, I, I know you feel the same, is, is that moment in your life where when it's finished, I don't think I've ever felt more satisfied, apart from having children. Totally agree. Or, or Luton beating Arsenal in 1988 in the Littlewoods no, Cup. No, it's, big, it's bigger just... for me than any Liverpool victory, <laughs> I can tell you. I mean, I totally agree. And, and I think it's that thing of having, you know, thousands of people mm. who all say that was good. Yeah. You know, that yeah. was really good. Well, it's, and, it's a communal event, isn't it? I mean, we yeah. put it on, but it's the people that make the festival. We don't make the festival. Uh, we don't make a success. You know, we, we don't really make it what it is. It's when people come along and engage with it. And and there, I think it's I think that that's you know that that's the really interesting thing about it. It feels to me like all five six thousand of those people are in the same zone as us. Yeah. They're in the same headspace. Yeah. Well, it's that great and, moment uh, when you start a new school. You find your friends. You know, and yes. they're the ones that you have a common interest with. And it sounds corny, but you know, I talk to a lot of the people at the festival, you know, 99% I've never spoken to before, but there's a common interest there. They're Definitely. There for, they wouldn't be there otherwise. You they know? want they want to find what we've found. Yeah. yeah. And, and to come, and, and no, you're right. I mean, it does sound a bit wanky, but it is absolutely true that it's, mm. it is the people. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, I suppose for us, because everything is curated by the four of us. There isn't anything there that we don't like. So I know. we're not we're not, not even from the not even from the pizza <laughs> guy right the way forcing yeah. your taste on them, you know. But, but we um, but I and I think you know and t uh, so long as we continue to do that it will continue to work. Yeah. The minute that we abdicate responsibility for choices to someone else or oh, we, yeah, yeah. or we allow ourselves to be watered down. I mean it's like you know we we I didn't even tell you this but we were approached by quite a big clothing company after this year's edition to ask what it would cost them to become a headline sponsor. And I just said, it wouldn't cost you anything because we can't do it. We're not going to yeah, do yeah. it. Yeah. You know, it would be wrong. Mm. And, and that may be immediate commercial. In, in the immediate term, that may be commercially nuts, but in the long term, yeah, it's right. Well, I think a good example, f you know, uh, for me, um, you know, I'm a vegetarian, but, you know, certain fields there, you know, they're burying sheep and cooking them and, you know, um, killing bambas and things. Yeah. You know? But it's, you know, it's that... <laughs> I've grown up, I think it's where I come from, where you do, you just accept people have different opinions and well, different, uh, we, different cultures. That's and right, that's, on the food stage, we have a vegan chef, followed yeah. by a meat chef, followed by a yeah. vegetarian chef. Yeah, we all need to get on. You yeah. Know? Um, and yeah. I, I find a lot of festivals and events in general now are very myopic in the fact that it's one interest. And that one interest is just, you know, they try and expand it, expand it, a small idea becomes a bigger idea, and it, the idea doesn't sustain the expansion. Well, I suspect that that's because money is the principal yeah. motivator. Yeah. And because we've built slowly, it hasn't had to be for us. Yeah. Well, I thought that that was a fascinating conversation. I feel in a weird way that we've hardly scratched the surface. Steve is such a modest guy that you don't really get any of this stuff from him unless you tease it out. I feel in many ways there's probably quite a lot that we could have chatted about, uh, particularly as I'm very interested in music, but there's more than just music there. I hope you'll agree. So maybe we can talk again one day. Thank you very, very much.
to all of you for joining me. I started this as a hobby, and it still is a hobby. I love doing it, but it's incredibly gratifying that so many people have listened to it and make so many nice and generous comments. I hope you enjoyed today. Thank you very much to you then for listening, and thanks to Abbo for talking to me. Thanks also to my friend Jim Friend for doing the editing. Before we end, I think we should probably go out with a little bit of Jeff Buckley, don't you? Jeff Buckley was a remarkable character, and I imagine that many of you listening will know him. If you don't, do investigate him. There isn't a vast wealth of recorded material out there. He's probably best known for his cover of Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen, which was an early cover. It's now become part of X Factor and goodness knows what else. But in those days, it was quite an unusual song to cover. But I don't think we'll play that. I think we should probably play out with one of the songs that Steve mentions, which is undoubtedly one of Jeff Buckley's best, which is Dream Brother. See you soon. Bye. Bye.